So a quick reminder where we were last week and and where we're kind of at in in our sermon series. Last week we were with Peter and the other disciples as they went through the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had sent them ahead of him to go across to Capernaum while he stayed and prayed alone on the other side of the mountain. Then in the middle of the night, the, the winds come and they start blowing the boat off course. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Peter and them think it's all, they think it's a ghost or a mirage, and they, they, they cry out in fear. And the Lord tells them to take courage. It is I do not fear. And Peter, realizing that this is Jesus, cries out. And he says, Lord, if it's really you, command me to come out to you on the water. So Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking towards him. And then eventually he starts seeing the, noticing the, the winds and the waves, and then he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reaches out and pulls him up and takes him back into the boat. And then the disciples worshiped him, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. So that's where we were last week, because we're in a series called Follow Me. We're looking at the life of Christ through the eyes of the disciples. We're considering their, their culture, we're considering their lives, their, their family, politics, everything that they've been dealing with as Jews living during that time. And we've been specifically focusing in on Peter. He's kind of been our, our main guy, and we're going to go back to him over the next couple of weeks. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to end up focusing more on the last final days of Christ through the lens of Peter. But this week, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. We're not going to focus in as much on on Peter this week. We've been doing, the sermons have been more of a narrative story-based telling. This week's going to be a little bit more of a theological week. Because we need to understand this before we go into that final week of of Christ's life. Before his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We need to understand everything the way they would have understood at that time for the disciples. So the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to approach it from their viewpoint, but then we're going to look at it in light of the cross and the resurrection. Because you have to remember, the disciples, Jesus has not yet died on the cross. The Holy Spirit has not yet been poured out into them. They are going through all of this without the realization of everything that's going to take place and without the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them to help them understand all of these things. A little bit of context between what happened last week and where we're going to be at in Matthew chapter 22 this week. So we've seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles. He's fed thousands. He's healed people. He teaches. He's been confronted by all these lawyers and Pharisees and Sadducees. We've heard him teach in parables. He even raised a man from the dead recently in the life of the disciples. And we've been following Jesus for a couple of years now. And just a few days ago, you came into Jerusalem to observe the Passover. We've talked about that in the past few weeks. That's the the biggest festival and feast that they have for the Jewish culture. So as Jesus came into town, he sent you and a couple of others to go get him a colt, a donkey, to ride into town. And some people heard he was coming into town, and they come out with palm branches shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's this big spectacle, and you're thinking, wow, something big is really about to happen, right? Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, and everybody seems to be singing his, his praises. But then the Pharisees, the Sadducees, 
Pharisees, the, the scribes, the lawyers start really intensely questioning him and talking to him. They're trying everything they can to trip him up, to catch him in something wrong, to get him to go against something in Rome or to get him to go against something in Judaism. So they keep coming to him asking about, well, about the resurrection, about should they pay their, their uh, taxes to Caesar. And you have all these questions coming, and that's where we're going to be at today. That's what's going on right before we pick up in Matthew chapter 22. And this story also appears in the book of Mark chapter 12. I recommend later you go and read that account as well. But we're going to focus in Matthew because of a few things that Jesus says. But I'm also going to point us to something that comes from Mark at the end. So after astonishing and silencing the Sadducees about the resurrection, which if you don't quite remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the fun way to always remember is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So they were sad, you see, because there's no life after death. So that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They actually don't really get along, but they were both trying to catch Jesus. Anyway, so Jesus silences the Sadducees, and one of the Pharisees comes to question Jesus, this one being a lawyer, right? He studies the law, and he's going to ask Jesus about the law. That's, as a a Pharisee, that's their greatest concern. So he comes to him, and he asks him a question, beginning in uh, verse 36 is where we're going to pick up. One of them, a lawyer, spoke to him to question him, questioning Jesus. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment? In the law. So we're talking about the law, right? That's Jesus is going to answer about the law. He's asking what is the greatest commandment in the law. Again, this is not the first time they've asked Jesus these kind of questions. Jesus has gotten very used to doing this with them. But every time, if you go back and look whenever Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, Jesus always answers their question and always goes beyond and looks at the deeper issue involved in their question. And we're going to see the same thing today. Now, as a Jew, if you were in Peter's shoes, if you were looking at this from the apostles, you'd feel pretty confident that Jesus can answer this question really well. And besides that, you'd be very interested in this too, right? As a Jew, your understanding is that the way of righteousness is to keep the law, And then when you transgress the law, that you go and make atonement for it through the proper sacrifice. So you're thinking, wow, what Jesus is going to talk about the greatest commandment. I better pay attention to this because if nothing else, I could go before God and say, well, God, I kept the greatest commandment. So you might be thinking this might give you some boasting before the Lord. That's the common way the Jews felt about the law. But listen to Jesus' answer in verse 37. Jesus said to him, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus has just given them the most important, the most foundational, the greatest of all the law given is this one commandment. And if you had paid attention in Hebrew school whenever you were growing up or in your family, listening to the traditions of your family that you were taught, your mind would have been hearkened back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, when Moses gave the law to the people. Hear what Moses said right before the law was given to everyone. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So even before the law was given, Moses said, before any of this is handed out, this is what you must know. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. But then Jesus continues in his explanation here. Again, Jesus was referring back to Deuteronomy, right? But he continues on. And he says, and the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that command doesn't come from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. You can go read about that later. Interesting though, the man asked what the greatest commandment was. He was looking for the single greatest command. But Jesus responds and gives him two. So not only has Jesus answered this question, then he takes it a step further. But he's not done, is he? If you read the text, there's more to what Jesus says here in, in verse 40. He continues. Jesus says in verse 40, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's What Jesus has just said here is this is the linchpin for the law and the prophets. On these two commands depends everything else. They're the foundation for the law. So obviously these are pretty important, right? If the entire law depends on them, if Jesus says this is the greatest commandment, and then he says the second one is like it, these are pretty important, right? Now I have a couple of issues with these commands that I'm going to bring up for us. First of all, Jesus said that you're to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The word love here comes from the word agape which is a divine love. It's a charitable love. It's a love that gives and asks for nothing in return. It's a love that gives when nothing is returned. And John actually tells us in 1 John 4, 7, that to love like that is of God. Because God is love. The only way we can love with agape love is through God. By our own strength and by our own will, we can't love with that kind of love. Human beings don't have that capability to love. That's God love. It's not our love. So that's the first issue I see. And then number two, he says to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul. All. I'm going to ask a, a very rhetorical question here, but has anyone in here ever loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time, always keeping that command. So every single person transgresses that command. The first and most important command that all the law depends on, we can't keep. In fact, we can't even do it by our own strength or power, but we certainly can't even keep it all the time. But then number two, let's look at the second command. He says, okay, well, if we don't get the first, let, let's at least look at the second, right? Maybe 50-50, maybe huh? He says to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the word love here comes from agape. Divine love, charitable love, love that seeks nothing in return. And he says you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask you, do you love every one of your neighbors all the time with that kind of love? Jesus has just given us the two 
most important commands in all of Scripture, all of the law and the prophets depends on these two things, we can't do it and we can't keep it. So what are we to do then? I like the, the words here that Jesus used. When he says that the reason I chose to do this out of Matthew was that he said that all the law and the prophets depend on these two things. So real quick, I want to look at these commands real fast. Number one, there's nothing wrong with the actual command itself, right? Jesus says to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God deserves our love. He deserves all of our love with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our soul, all of our strength. Everything we are, he deserves. So there's nothing wrong with him to require that of us, is there? It's not wrong of him to require what he is owed. He deserves that. And we ought to love others as ourselves. Why? Because each one of us is made in the image of God. Our value comes not in our achievements, our personality, the things we do, the things we say. Our value comes from the fact that we bear the image of God, every single one of us. So your neighbor deserves the love that you deserve. These are not bad commands. The, the problem is not the command. The problem is our sin. The problem is our inability to keep these commands, right? That's the problem. So again, what, what hope is there if we can't, we don't even have that kind of love on our own and we certainly can't keep it all the time? Again, all the law and the prophets. If you remember back early on in Jesus' ministry, if you were the apostle Peter, one of the things that happened after he, shortly after he called you, he went and gave a very long sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. You can go read about this. It's a wonderful passage. We get a lot of deep amazing teaching from Jesus. But what he's doing in this Sermon on the Mount is he's actually upending some of the wrong misunderstandings and the wrong teachings that the Jewish people had been given for centuries, right? If you go read that passage, you'll hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, blank. But I say to you, blank. All throughout that passage, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus was showing them that the law was not wrong or bad, but they had misinterpreted the law. They had not used the law for its proper purpose. Jesus said that the law and the prophets depend on these two great commands. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told the people... He said in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hear that. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now let me ask you this. Did Jesus fulfill the law? Did Jesus accomplish what he came here to do? Did he keep the law perfectly in every single way? Yes. Did he ever transgress the law in any way? No. Jesus fulfilled everything that the prophets spoke about him, and he fulfilled every requirement of the law. Jesus has fulfilled everything required in the law. So why was the law given, right? Why was the law even Shown to us. Why was the law even shared with us? Well, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, he says, why then the law, Galatians chapter 3, he said, it was added because of transgressions 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. If you remember our last series, we were traveling with Abraham, right? And the promise was made to Abraham. And the promise was made to his seed, to his offspring. The law was given because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Jesus Christ is the offspring that all of God's promises were made to. He lived and fulfilled every single prophecy about himself and fulfilled the law in every single way. He is the perfect and holy righteous one of God. Now, what does that have to do with you? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul tells us in the book of Romans chapter 10, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. You see, when you believed in Christ, our first series we talked about this when I first came here, talked about being united in Christ. We talked about being in Christ. And several things happened when you believed in Christ and were united to him, right? You participated in the things he participated in. You died with him, you were buried with him, and you were raised with him. You can go look this up in Romans chapter 6, Colossians 2 are great places to go look this up, uh, and Galatians, of course. And Paul says it this way. Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So in your union with Christ, you died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you are raised with Christ. You live in him and he lives in you. And two of the accomplishments that happened out of this union, right? We talked about being with him, but two of the things that happened because of this union. Number one, it's the one we all focus on all the time. Number one is that he took our sin and suffered our punishment. Too often, that's where we stop completely. When it comes to the gospel, too often, we get to the part where we say, Christ took your sin, he suffered the punishment, and we stop there. Why did Christ take your sin? Why did he suffer the punishment? He did that so that the righteous demand of the law, death for sin, would be satisfied. And having been satisfied, the law no longer demands death on those who are in Christ. The law has no longer any demand over you. As a believer in Christ, you are no longer under the law. You have been given Christ's righteousness. Big fancy word for this is imputed righteousness. It's where you are clothed in his righteousness. God counts you as having fulfilled the law as if you were Christ who fulfilled the law. Christ, having taken your sin, gives you his righteousness. And this is not just a legal standing, though it is. Christ declares you forgiven and declares you righteous. But think about this. When Christ took all of the sin out of your spirit, when he took all of the sin out of you, he made for himself a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. 
Because while you had sin in you, the Holy Spirit could not be united to you. But without the sin in you coming to Christ, the Holy Spirit can come and be united to you. That's what it means when he says he has given his spirit to you. He has taken your sin and united his spirit to you. So not just only do you have his righteousness accounted to you, that imputed righteousness, you actually have the righteous one, the Holy Spirit living in you. It's been imparted to you, and it's not because of you, but because of him. So think about it this way. Paul says it in, uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Our righteousness with God does not come from the law, but from faith. Now, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, the reason why righteousness can't come from the law is that was never the intent of the law. We have been misguided so often to think that righteousness comes through keeping the law. That was not the intent of the law. The law was not given to make you righteous. The law was given to show you and to teach you and to prove to you that you are not righteous. That you cannot save yourself, but you need a savior. That's why he gave the law. Again, if you want to learn more about this, go read the entire book of Galatians. And you will see that the law was not given to show how holy or worthy you could be, but to show how unholy you were, to show how unrighteous you are. The law was our guardian until Christ came. But now that he has come, we're no longer under our guardian. And Paul says it like this, the righteousness of God is by faith in Christ. What God considers righteousness for you is faith in Christ. He says this in the book of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done what the law couldn't do. He sent his son, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Keep reading. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. The righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. Not not walking by the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. Whose Spirit? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ Jesus. The Spirit that was dwelling in Christ as he walked on the earth. The Spirit that raised him from the dead is the Spirit who lives inside of you. And when you walk by that Spirit, you don't gratify the desires of the flesh and he will lead you in the way of God, in God's righteousness. So we don't live before God in our own righteousness, right? We have none. We don't have a righteousness of our own. We have Christ's righteousness. So remembering this, 
These, these commands, I've often heard them taught and given to us as burdens. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I can't. I don't have that ability. But Christ does. And Christ lives in every single one of us who believes in him. And not only that, not only that, he has done those things, he is still doing those things. The first command, to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Christ is living evermore, is he not? He is living. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I promise you, there's no one else who could compare to the love of Christ except the Holy Spirit when it comes to the love for the Father. He is still loving the Father with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything he is, he still loves him with all that. And then the second command, to love your neighbor as yourself. Has there ever been a human being that loved others the way Christ Jesus did? Who not only died for his friends, but gave himself up and died while we were yet still his enemies. Christ died for us. And he still loves us and he still calls us to repentance. And some of this might be troubling a few of you in your conscience and thinking about this. You might be thinking, well, what do I do with the law? We'll, we'll get to that whenever we do a series on Galatians. We'll talk about what we're going to do with the law right now, with, today as believers. But understand, everything that I'm talking about here today is only for those who trust in Christ. Only those who believe in Christ, who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, receive these benefits. Again, when they were asking Jesus these questions, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they were trying to trick him. They were trying to trap him in something. They were trying to show, see, he's not the great teacher that he claims to be. Whenever we read the story in the book of Mark, the lawyer actually responds to Jesus after Jesus gives his answer. We don't have that in the Matthew account. We have it in Mark. And so basically what happens is, is that the lawyer tells him that that he has answered well, that you're right, teacher. You said that truly that he is one. Again, going back to the passage in Deuteronomy, and there's no other God. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is much more than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, right? To love the Lord is more than all the sacrifices and things that the law requires, Now look at the response of Jesus. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus said to him, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. But notice, Jesus didn't say, you got it, you're in the kingdom. Jesus said you're not far. Understanding these concepts just knowing the theological concepts or rules or terms does not save you. Just to simply know that you need to love God is not the same as loving God. To know that you need to love your neighbor is not the same as living out that command. To know about God is not the same to know God. That's why Jesus told him, you're not far from the kingdom. You've got the answer right there. Come to know me, I am the answer. 
And that's the same thing that he invites every single one of us, right? Jesus obviously knew the law. He wrote the law. It came from his very heart. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is not the law. The problem is our sin. The problem is not the law. The problem is we can't keep the law. But Christ kept it for us. That we could live in him and his fulfillment of the law. That's the entire point of this. Is that you cannot keep the law. And trying to keep the law will only prove that you can't. But thanks be to God that we don't have to. Thanks be to God that Christ came and did all of this for us so that we could believe in him and receive his righteousness by nothing more than faith. You're blessed in him who kept the law, who keeps God's commandments. And the spirit of him who did those things lives in you as a believer. Now some of you might be thinking, this is where everybody always ends up going, so does that mean I get to do whatever I want? No. The Spirit of God will never lead you into sin. The Spirit of God will never lead you to walk contrary to God. The Spirit of God will only to lead you to walk by faith in God, looking to Him at all times for all things, walking in His way, walking in His light. And you'll stumble, you'll, you'll fall. But again, you are not under a burden that you cannot keep hoping just to keep hoping just to try and please God with all these things. He's pleased with you because of Christ Jesus. He's satisfied with you because of his son. He looks upon you and loves you the same way he loves his only begotten son. The savior of the world. have his freedom you have his spirit walk in his freedom walk in his spirit and walk in his fulfillment and he will lead you in the way you should go church let us pray our father we come to you today god and we <laughs> We admit that even as, as believers in Christ Jesus, there are times in our lives where we are trying to fulfill our own righteousness. Where we are trying to be our own righteousness instead of depending fully and completely on you. Where we are trying to do things that, that make us righteous before you instead of realizing and living in everything that your son has done for us. God, we're not under any burdens to, to prove ourselves. We're not under any burdens to, to follow anything. We don't have to worry about do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, don't, all these festivals, all the laws and sacrifice. We don't have to worry about those things, God. We are free to live before you as your children in Christ Jesus. We are empowered to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and strength because of him who lives inside of us. Let us depend on that as our source of love 
Let us depend on that as our source of love for you and for our neighbors, God. Let us abandon any notions of self-righteousness and look only to you and find in your son Jesus all that we will ever need and more. Because of everything you have done and everything you continue to do. Lord, lead us in the way we should go. Show us what you want us to do in this world as your people, as your blood-bought and forgiven people who have been raised from the dead and who are alive in Christ. I pray that you will move through every single person in this room. God, and I pray that as we're about to move into our, our time of invitation, that you will move people to bring their burdens, bring their concerns, their worries, their cares Bring their self-righteousness and lay it down at the foot of the cross before you today. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Amen. At this time, we're going to move into our invitation.